Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Does the Bible condone slavery? That's the topic we're going to be talking about this episode. And given recent events over the past year or so in the world, that's a topic that has come up most often associated with the idea of racism. Now, obviously, racism is a very bad thing. And this is a very important question, because if the Bible condones slavery, does that then mean that the Bible can be used as racist propaganda? Does that mean that the Bible should be treated as culturally irrelevant? Or what is the relevance of the Bible when it comes to this issue? So let's just jump right into it. So does the Bible condone slavery? Well, yes and no. You see, when we think of slavery, what we're most often thinking of is not even the slavery that exists today in our modern world, because let's be clear, there is still slavery in our modern world. The most rampant and disgusting form of it right now is sex slavery, but there is child slavery going on and there's slavery of different people groups still going on in our day and age. But most often when we say the word slavery, what we're thinking of is the slave trade that was trading uh, people from Africa, indigenous to Africa, to different parts of the world. One of the most prominent and prevalent of those being the United States where, and I'll just be frank, white men would trade black men as slaves, and they would abuse them, and they would physically hurt them and physically threaten them with pain and whipping and and torment, and in some cases, uh, brutality that would often lead to death. And so let's just kind of get the elephant in the room out of the way, first and foremost. The Bible does not condone that kind of slavery. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 21, when God gets the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and he gives them the Ten Commandments, one of the things he says right after is he says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So, to get the elephant in the room out of the way immediately, the slavery we are thinking of the slave trade from Africa that was race-based, the uh, slave trade that was based on, on a people group being lesser than another people group, is expressly condemned in the second book of the Bible. Now, of course, this is an explicit condemnation of it, and shall be put to death. Shall be put to death is something that God commands as a punishment for capital crimes. Murder and adultery are the first two that come to mind for me personally when I think of the death sentence. And so if we were really following Old Testament biblical principles after the uh, Civil War in the United States of America, we would have put to death all of the slave owners. Is that a little harsh? I don't know. Stealing and selling a man is very evil, and God would agree with that. The Bible agrees with that. But something we need to keep in mind is that God is a God of grace. And even murder and adultery, God sometimes is gracious on those. I'm thinking of one story in particular of a king of Israel named David who committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba and had her husband murdered, had her husband killed, and he got to live. And God showed grace 
to David because God's a God of grace. Old Testament and New Testament, God is a God of grace. Does that condone David's actions? No, not at all. Uh, Both things that David did are expressly forbidden. And as a matter of fact, Exodus also gives provision for what happens when a man takes more than one wife, also expressly forbidden in the Bible. The man is to marry one woman. You're to have one spouse. And yet, in Exodus, God says if a man takes a second wife, he shall still honor the first wife and give her the inheritance he was going to give her and and take care of her and all of this stuff. Because the Bible lives in reality. And that's why the Bible gives judicial laws for murder. That's why the Bible gives judicial laws for adultery. That's why the Bible gives judicial laws for stealing on how you're to handle these sins. It doesn't mean the Bible condones any of these sins, but because the Bible lives in reality, it has to lay out the consequences for this. But let's talk about slavery, because there are other passages in the Bible besides Exodus chapter 21. For example, there is Deuteronomy 15, which says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, He shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. And then Paul instructs the masters, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. In Colossians, Paul says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The only time Paul says for a bondservant to be released is in Philemon, where he's writing to Philemon about Philemon's servant that has come and served with Paul, and he says, No longer treat him as a bondservant, verse 16, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? And then in Exodus, Moses addresses the action of parents selling their sons and daughters into bondservanthood. And so the Bible talks about it. And so does it condone it? Well, again, in a way, yes and no. And notice I've been using the word bondservant because I've been reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Old King James Version of the Bible, which... uh, most hold to be the first English translation of the Bible back in 1611, the word slave was used only once, and that's when Paul writes that he who commits sin is slave to sin. However, when we get to the NIV version, which was written in 1984, the word slave is used 104 times, and the word slavery is used 17 times. And why is that? Well, we can speculate and say, that by 1984, perhaps most people didn't know what a bond servant was, what a servant was, or what indentured servitude was, and so the word slave was more culturally common. That would be my speculation. I don't actually know the reason why slave is more common in the NIV. The word slave is more common in the NIV than it is in the King James or subsequently the New King James. But it does it a disservice, doesn't it? Because there is a difference between a slave and a servant, between a slave and a bond servant. Again, as we just talked about, this idea of going and kidnapping uh, a a people group and then forcing them into slavery is explicitly condemned in the Bible. There is also an implicit um, disapproval of slavery 
starting in Genesis chapter 1, where God makes man in his image, which would, uh, would essentially set every single human being as equal. But we have to keep in mind that that is unique to the Bible, that in all other cultures, especially all ancient cultures, human beings weren't seen as equal. Actually, in the world today, equality is a very Western ideal. It's something very precious to us in the West. It's something that we we fight for, that we rally for, that we protest for, that if anyone has any kind of thought uh, that, that would promote disequality, that, that, that would promote treating someone unequally from treating someone else, it's, it's a, a triggering thing for us here in the West. It's, it's something that is uh, despicable, and yet it doesn't exist everywhere in the world. Just as a side note, in China, homosexuality still isn't legal. Well, I mean, at least homosexual marriage and practice isn't legal. In China, if you told your employer you were a homosexual, they have every right in the world to fire you based on that one thing. There, there isn't equality everywhere in the world. It's something very precious to us in the West, and it, it's something that has to come from being made in the image of God. It's something that has to come from saying, before any of us were ever even made, we were equal. Otherwise, whatever makes us equal has to be something that exists only in a certain culture or only in our minds. And so implicitly then, William Wilberforce, who was the Christian man who rose up through Parliament in England in the, I think it was late 1600s, early 1700s, don't quote me on that, uh, but look it up and correct me if you want. William Wilberforce, though, became a Christian, rose up through Parliament, and fought to abolish the slave trade in England. He fought to make it illegal for England's economy to be based on trading humans as slaves out of Africa, and he won. Now, granted, slavery wasn't abolished. Again, it's still not abolished, but slavery in America took another couple hundred years to be abolished because America was still being founded <laughs> and, and discovered at the time that William Wilberforce uh, did this in England. But that didn't come from another religion, and that didn't come from any humanistic principles. It came from a Christian man who fought his way up through Parliament and then fought for equality, which is something that the world has very scarcely seen in all of recorded history. For most of recorded history, equality could only be a pipe dream. It's only in a culture that has been so heavily influenced by the idea that all men and women are created equal. And that's something we have to grasp, is that without that statement, we have no leg to stand on for equality. If all men and women are not created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, if none of that is true, we have no basis for equality. The stronger is the superior. The more wealthy is the superior. The smarter is the superior. And if you find a collection of stronger, smarter, and more wealthy within a certain race, i.e. a European-based race, then the European-based race must be superior to all other races if we aren't all endowed with unalienable rights from a creator, if we are not all created equal. If we are, then equality has a fighting chance. And if that creator says anyone who steals, who kidnaps a person and sells them, forces them into slavery, if that kind of person deserves death, if the creator says that, then we better freaking take it seriously. 
But back to the issue of slavery or servanthood. And for purposes of this uh, podcast episode, I'm going to replace the word slavery with bondservant and servanthood, kind of undo what the NIV version of the Bible did and talk about what the Bible actually addresses, which is servanthood or bondservanthood. And half the time it was voluntary in the ancient world. And that's something also important to keep in mind, that when we think of slavery, we think of um, slavery as solely a negative term, when biblically it's actually a neutral term. And we should view it as a neutral term, because there were uh, times where slavery happened negatively, especially in the pagan world, especially in the Roman world as we enter the New Testament. There were times uh, where people were captured, or people were prisoners of war, or people had their land conquered. Think Babylon, 586 BC, Israel was carried off as servants into Babylon because they were a conquered people. But it is important to note that even conquered peoples in the ancient world, and this isn't just Jewish culture, but most ancient world cultures, even conquered peoples weren't slaves forever. Granted, some of them probably died in servanthood and bondservanthood, but it wasn't the common practice to make even captured peoples be servants for their entire lives. But after a certain number of years or a certain number of profit, they would be set free. And these are the kind of the laws that we see in the Bible concerning servants is that, as I just read, on the seventh year, they were set free. And Actually, Deuteronomy even lays out provisions that you're supposed to give servants as you set them free. You're supposed to give them clothes. You're supposed to give them food. You're supposed to give them provisions to go out into the world with. And even in their servanthood, as they were servants to you, they were to be treated basically the same as family. They were to be given provisions, a roof over their head. And we get to the New Testament, and they're to be given a seat at the table even with family. And one very big reason for this is because God hates debt. And that's oftentimes in the ancient world where bondservanthood and servanthood came from is debt. And we have to kind of rewind our minds three, four, five thousand years ago when debt wasn't common. I mean, actually, we just have to rewind our minds a hundred years ago to when debt wasn't common. And remember that 150 and 200 years ago, we would actually throw people in prison in this country for having too much debt. Think about that the next time you're looking at your student loan balance. But debt really is this new phenomenon that we have, that debt is normal. And I don't want to sound too much like Dave Ramsey here, but it's true. And if you've listened to him for any amount of time, you know he says this all the time, right? Proverbs 22, the borrower is slave to the lender. And he, when he's saying that, he's quoting the NIV because the new King James, the old King James says the, the borrower is a servant to the lender. Because that was the ancient principle of debt, was if you owed a debt that you could not pay, an alternative to paying it was to be a servant, was to serve whoever lent you the debt for a certain amount of years, and at the end of it, your debt was to be forgiven, with the maximum amount of years being six and forgiven on the seventh year, the year of Jubilee. 
And we have a kind of a similar thing. If you look at student loan forgiveness programs here in, in the United States of America, there's a de it's a deal you make with the government where you work at a certain kind of job for 10 years, you take a lower income because the government's going to take subsidies from that job, from that company for 10 years. And after a period of 10 years, they'll, for they'll forgive a portion or all of your student loan debt. And it was a very similar kind of principle and concept back in the ancient world, and especially in the Old Testament, that if you owed a debt you couldn't pay, you could work that debt off, but you would be a bond servant. You'd be an indentured servant to the lender because there weren't banks. There weren't creditors. There weren't brokers. There weren't mortgage companies. There weren't payday lenders. There weren't really paydays. This was a, a, a barter economy. And most of the world has been a barter economy for most of recorded history. When the Bible even talks about currencies, right? It talks about shekels. That's a, a measurement of weight. And it's a shekel of a precious metal, right? Shekels of silver, the Bible talks about. And so you have to remember then, you couldn't go down to a bank and apply for a loan. There was no bank. You had to ask your neighbor for a loan. And it was a shameful thing to ask for a loan. Again, up until about 1918, debt has been a shameful thing for pretty much all of human history. Because what would happen if you couldn't pay off your debt is you would go into bond servanthood. You would become a servant and you would choose to do so. Or you would sell your children as servants and you would choose to do so. No one forced you into it. And you would be doing so to your neighbor, not to some stranger. And the Bible said your neighbor had to treat you like you had rights, like you had the same kind of rights that any other person in Israel had. And then the New Testament comes and Paul says, if anyone's in this situation, if your neighbor is paying back a debt to you and they're your servant for six years, you don't just treat them like any other Israelite. You treat them like your family. You treat them like your brother. You treat them like your son. You treat them like your daughter because we're all serving one master and his name is Jesus. And lastly, the other reason someone would go into servanthood is because they committed a crime. And as I said, there, the Bible provides provisions on how to justly deal with crime. The Bible doesn't condone murder or adultery, but the Bible does lay out rules on how to handle people who have committed murder and people who have committed adultery. Likewise, when you steal or harm your neighbor in some other way, you owe your neighbor a debt. There's a justice that must be served. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the way the law lays it out. And sometimes the ancient practice was to use bondservanthood as a means of justice, as a means of serving out justice. And this is kind of similar to the prisoner of war thing where being a servant for someone is a way of carrying out a sentencing of justice for them. And the modern United States prison system was actually kind of modeled after this. At, at first, the prison system was meant to be a place of reform. It was meant to be a place of paying back your debt to society, as the old phrase goes. Granted, now some prison systems are corrupt and some are more corrupt than others, and we don't need to go into that uh, right now. But for purposes of this podcast, it's important that we understand the concept that criminals don't have to be executed for every crime. There are some countries that if you steal, you lose your hand. That wasn't meant to be the case in ancient Israel, and that wasn't the case of what our United States justice system was founded on. It was founded on this idea of reform. It was founded on this idea of grace, because that's what reform is. 
That's what bond servanthood, servanthood can be to the criminal. It can be an act of grace and mercy, saying you may have sinned, but you don't deserve the condemnation that the sin deserves. And so in a way, it's similar to the debts, right? The Bible talks about sin being a debt. As I mentioned, the King James only uses the word slave once, and that's whoever sins is a slave to sin. That's what Paul writes, that sin creates a debt, a spiritual debt. And that's something else that can happen to bondservants in the Bible. That's the entire story of the book of Ruth, right? Naomi and Ruth come back, these two widows, to Israel, and they're broke. And we see that because Ruth becomes a bondservant. She becomes a servant of a man named Boaz. And it just so happens, a couple chapters into the story, that the year of Jubilee is up, and one of Naomi's relatives has the opportunity to buy back the land that her late husband left and to marry Ruth the Moabitess, the foreigner even in Israel, and to redeem, to buy back her, to buy back the family and the land as a part of that. And that was a law built in for bondservants, that they could be redeemed, that their debts could be paid by another. And of course, the story so wonderfully goes that Boaz, absolutely smitten and in love with Ruth, pays off her debt as a kinsman redeemer, and that there's a redemption and a grace out of it. And so in a way, no, the Bible doesn't condone slavery at all. It definitely doesn't condone slavery in the way that we think about it, because it says that any man who steals another man and sells him should be put to death. So the Bible views what the atrocities that happened a few hundred years ago, the Bible views those as absolutely evil from the mind of Satan and the pits of hell themselves. And anyone who would use the Bible to justify racism or to justify slavery, as many in the South did a couple hundred years ago in the Civil War, is themselves also very evil. <laughs> and the Bible says what they deserve. And then in another sense, no, the Bible doesn't condone bondservanthood either because the Bible doesn't condone debt. The borrower is a bondservant to the lender. Proverbs 6, if you have signed for yourself a surety, my son, deliver yourself like the gazelle from the hands of the hunted. Paul wrote in Romans, God would have you be a debt to no one except for the debt of perfect love to one another. But the Bible lives in the real world, as do all of us, and people get into debts. And there weren't credit card companies and consolidations and bankruptcies 3,000 years ago. There was bondservanthood. And because that was the case, the Bible outlined rules in both the Old and the New Testament of how servants and masters were to treat each other because there was just no getting away from debt then. Just like there's no getting away from it now, the only difference is now we have bankruptcies. We have consolidations. We have other credit cards and all kinds of different stuff. And the Bible still doesn't condone any of it, but God does give provisions and how to act in the midst of it. But anyway, we are over time. I do hope you've enjoyed the discussion. And as always, feel free to let me know what you think. And of course, as always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show.